You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. We want to invite you to keep your Bibles open to Ruth chapter 2 and 3, if you will. And as mentioned before, I do hope that you'll join with us this evening on the South Lawn for our time of State Fair. We don't get the State Fair this year, and we're going to provide a cheaper version of that, all right? So we invite you to be there tonight. Bring your lawn chair. It should be a great time. More than anything, we want you to feel the hope of a future of following Jesus Christ. And today, our joy would be for you to trust him if you've yet to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you a love story today, a love story that literally moves the pages of history. Many of you know the name of Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers. Many of you may not know that he was an ambassador to France. And while in France... He joined a literary society, an agnostic literary society. And as the various people would begin taking turns reading stories, well, Franklin, not telling where he'd gotten the story and changing the name so that no one knew the origin of the story, reportedly read the story of the book of Ruth to this agnostic literary society in France. They said to him in response, after conclusion, they said, Dr. Franklin, this is beyond a doubt the most beautiful romance love story we've ever heard. Would you give us leave, please, that we might have it published and give it broad distribution? To which Franklin, no Christian himself, said, it is already published and already has broad distribution. It's found in the Bible, the book that you profess to despise, the wonderful story of Ruth. Now, if that story isn't true, it should be. And it speaks to the power, the eloquence of the little story, the book of Ruth, 3,000 years of age, only book in your Bible named for a non-Jew, especially in the Old Testament, I should say, and one of two in the Old Testament named for a woman. Keep your Bibles open to Ruth chapters 2 and 3. And let me bring you up to speed if you missed the first chapter in the first message. If you remember, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, This too took off from Israel into the country of modern-day Jordan or the ancient country of Moab. It was there that Naomi experienced two weddings and three funerals. She buried her husband, and then she buried her two sons after they were married. It was blow upon blow. In fact, in verse 20 of chapter 1, Ruth is quoted as saying, excuse me, Naomi is quoted as saying as this, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant, call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Here is a woman who knew that there was a God, but she was absolutely convinced that this God was against her. Now, the weakest of all the people in Israel, ancient Israel, would have been a, a widow. She had the least in economic and social power. She needed not so much an education as we think today or a job skill. She needed land. She needed a family. She was without any of these. She is left all by herself. In fact, as she comes back home into Bethlehem, the Bethlehem of Jesus later, she says, I'm empty. But something very important happens. On her way back, what would have been a daughter-in-law has now become a friend, a woman by the name of Ruth. And Ruth gives this wonderfully famous, powerful 
little speech beginning in verse 16. She says, in fact, don't try to change my mind. I'm coming back with you. I picture the two of them speaking together at the border of Moab and Israel as if Naomi says, it's time for you to turn back. It's time for you to go home. That's when Naomi, or Ruth says to Naomi, don't try to dissuade me. Where you go, I will lodge. Your people are my people. Your God is now my God. She actually converts to the God of Yahweh. And she says, in fact, she takes a vow. Well, we'd say today, my hand's on the Bible. Where you're going to be buried, well, that's where they'll bury me. And at this, Naomi comes back into Bethlehem. They don't recognize her. The years have been especially hard on her. And now the Bible tells us she comes back and she says, I'm empty. She's discounting the woman that's standing next to her, standing next to her. And we begin to see at this moment, while everything has been against Naomi, something powerful is happening. This invisible hand, the invisible hand of God is beginning to move things. In fact, the very last verse of chapter 1, by way of recap, there's just very, very subtle touch here. Did you see it? Ruth and Naomi come back at the beginning of the barley harvest. Things are looking up for these two. In the most subtle of way, all these just happens. This just happened, and this just happened, and this just happened. In fact, what just happened was the barley harvest. Now, what we know is this as we begin the chapter 2. Ruth comes into Boaz's field. She doesn't know it yet. She just happened to come into an important family member. She just happened to come at harvest time, and she just happened to be protected. Now, there's three ancient facts. I'm going to call them quick facts that you need to be aware of. Each of these three are operating under the surface of the story. They're like a submarine, if you will. They cannot be seen, but they're influencing the surface of the story. Each of these three are customs or laws of ancient Israel. The first of this, each family, each family clan had a fixed amount of land in ancient Israel. This is the time of the judges. This is between 1100 and 1500 BC. And prior to this, when Israel settled the land, 12 tribes or 12 family clans, each of which got an allotment of land. And God was really careful to make sure that the land would not get outside of one family into another. He knew that if you're going to make a living, you had to have land, right? Hard to be a farmer without land, wouldn't you agree? The questions get much harder from here. Do you remember that 1992 movie starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman titled Far and Away? It's one of the first movies that Tracy and I saw in our dating years. It's a young Irish immigrant couple, Cruz and Kidman, and they come to the United States in hopes, like so many of the American dream, the economic opportunity. It's while up in the Northeast, they hear about free land being given away. Among the last scenes, Cruz is seen as taking his flag and putting it on land. Hence the boomer sooner, right? Well, that's not how it worked in ancient Israel. You didn't put a flag up. Your family owned a territory. And you had one man in particular, this man known as a kinsman redeemer, who would look out for potential widows, those who were minimalized and marginalized. He would ensure that the family territory would be passed down from one generation to another. See, God is working to ensure that there's income equality. 
We think of today of a Jeff Bezos who owns Amazon. Is he making a proportional income to those who do the work? God is behind this, and he's ensuring that no family has way too much territory and another clan has none. Here's the second fact you need to be aware of. A widow was to marry her husband's nearest male relative. Now, I know this sounds creepy, right? This sounds incredibly creepy, called leverite marriage, which comes from a Latin term. Can you imagine this? You, you die, and your wife, if you're married, your wife is to marry the nearest relative if there is no sons. This is a patriarchal society where land and possessions pass from one generation to the next. And so it's critically important that she were to marry someone within the family. Now, this is extremely creepy for us. We think about this. Some, some of you are wondering right now, your wives are especially wondering, uh, I wish I'd married his brother, or I would no way marry his brother. I'm not sure which of those two. That'll be a great discussion for you later this afternoon. But this was a sense of protection for females in a patriarchal society. God was, again, caring for the least and the vulnerable. Now, put it together. The kinsman redeemer, who will be Boaz in a moment, was to protect the family's land, but he was also to protect the family's widows. The two were connecting income equality. Here's the third fact that's going to be acting like a submarine in this story. It needs to come to the surface. Farmers were to leave the edges of their field for the poor. Ancient Hebrew farmers were not to to farm all the way to the edges, whether it's corn or barley or whether it's grapes. In fact, if you were harvesting and you dropped some, ancient Israel law would say, don't go back and pick up what you dropped. All of this was left for those who were needy. It wasn't just a handout. It was they could go to the field and provide for their own. So farmers were to be especially careful here. All the while, God is saying this to ancient Israel, I am the landowner. I'm the landowner. And as the landowner, these are my rules if you're going to be in my land. Right? Those three quick facts. I want you to see now the contrasting powerful character of both Ruth and, Naomi, Ruth and Boaz. Look with me at Ruth. What, what we see in the beginning with Ruth is an incredible person. She's given this great speech, where you go, I'll go. I'll die where you die. I'm coming, converting to your gods. Now, every time, almost every time Ruth's name is mentioned in the book of Ruth, it mentions she's from Moab five times. Five times she is referred to as Ruth from Moab, Ruth the Moabitess. Now, why is it doing that? It's doing it for the simple reason to remind all of us she's an outsider. She's not one of us. Today, as we drive around Texas, every so often there'll be a bumper sticker that says, Native Texan. She could not have that bumper sticker on the back of whatever she's driving back 3,000 plus years ago. But I want you to see something about Ruth here. The first thing we see is that she's an incredible worker. At the beginning of chapter 2 and at the end of chapter 1, did you see that there was a barley harvest as mentioned earlier? That harvest may have only lasted a few days. The first thing we learn from Ruth is that daylight is burning. Can you see her her saying that? Daylight's burning, burning. I've got to get to work. She made a commitment to her former mother-in-law. 
And now she's got to keep that commitment. So out she goes to the nearest field or the field that looks to be the best to her eyes, not knowing the landowner's name. She says in verse 2 of chapter 2, I'm going to the fields. And as she goes to the fields in verse 7, look at the report given by the field workers to the owner of the field. They said, yes, she's been here, Boaz, not knowing who Ruth is. Yes, she's been here. She's worked from morning till noon with only a short rest. Not only with that, we find in verse 17, she'll work from noon into the early evening. She's gleaning. She's working. She's working those edges of the field. She's coming in behind the field workers. In fact, after verse 17, before she quit for the end of the day, she beat out what she gleans. She beat it out. She measures it. She takes it home to Naomi. This is a hard-working lady. She's an immigrant. This is a new place for her. She feels very unsure about herself. But there's a lot to admire in Ruth. The second piece I want you to be aware of, not only is her work ethic, but her caution. She's extremely cautious, but she combines her cautiousness with her courage. And those two are really a great marriage. When I say she's cautious, notice she doesn't come and demand a handout. She goes to work, but she asks permission. Did you see that in the story? She asked permission from the workers. No doubt she's wondering, do things in this new country, Israel, work like they did back in Moab? My mother-in-law, my former mother-in-law may have told me that this is how they work. Can I have permission to work here? The field workers give her permission to work behind them. She asks if she can do this. She doesn't presume. She isn't pushy. Remember at this point of the story, She doesn't know the identity of the landowner. She's not aware that this is a distant relative to her former, now deceased husband. All this reminds me in the New Testament. Do you remember the woman that came to Jesus who was not a Hebrew? He said the Israel children should eat at the table first, and that's when the woman said in Mark chapter 7, Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat under the table the children's crumbs. This is a woman who has remarkable faith. She's cautious. She's courageous. Let me show you more of her courage, this piece of how she deals with this with such wisdom. In verse 1, chapter 2, we're given an incredible detail of the story. That Boaz is a distant relative to Limelech. That's Ruth's former father-in-law. And that's important because the landowner, Boaz, is going to be a potential kinsman redeemer, one who would work on behalf of a clan to ensure income equality, one who would work on behalf of widows to ensure that they're cared for. And so he comes to the field, just happens to be there that day. All these accidents in Ruth's story, it's incredible, just happens to be there. And he says, hey, hey guys, come here. Who's that girl following you in the fields? That's when they begin to share with him all of her great industry. In fact, did you notice Boaz sends enough food home with Naomi, as we read a moment ago, that Naomi would ask Ruth, sends enough food home with Ruth, that Naomi asked, where did you get this from? How did you have such success today? And that's when Ruth clues Naomi in. She says, well, I was in this guy's Boaz field. 
You know how that would read today? You know how Naomi would talk to Ruth today? Look here, girl. Look here, girl. That's one of our family members. I just happened to know, I've been reading here in the Bethlehem Matchmaker, that old boy's still single. Right? My daughter's listening. You can marry a rich man just as well as anybody else. You can fall in love with anybody, right? So here's our courage again. Now watch carefully, more seriously, this incredible, cautious courage. Naomi hatches a plan, and it's a really remarkable plan. Especially, remember, this is 3,000 years ago. Naomi begins to play matchmaker. And she says, okay, here's the first thing we need to do. Now that you're back, you need to get those clothes off. Ruth would have been walking around in widow's clothes, drab morning clothes. They would have been clothes that she'd worked in the field all day. You might have been able to smell her before you would have seen her. And then she says, there in the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3, you need to get some perfume. Even if you need to go next door, you need to smell good. And here's what I want you to do. There in verse 3 and verse 4, notice beginning in verse 6 that they're celebrating the harvest. This would have been a high time in ancient society. They brought the harvest in. And so here's what's going to happen. Naomi knew it by heart. He's going to eat, he's going to drink, and they're all going to sleep in the threshing floor. They're not going to go back home. They're going to sleep as a group, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to take, I want you to take the blanket and fold it to expose his feet so that he's aware something's different happening. And I want you to lay right there. Naomi's aim is clear. She wants to win for Ruth a godly husband and a secure future. Remember, in ancient Israel, most of the time, moms and dads arrange for the marriage. This is not just about love and romance. This is about securing your family's future. When Boaz wakes up, he says, what woman is here with me? And that's when in verse 9, she says, I am Ruth. I'm the woman that you met earlier today. I want you to spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is incredibly aggressive on the part of Ruth. Girls did not ask guys out. Girls did not ask guys to marry in this day and time. She's not pushy. She's not presumptive. She's courageous. You know, you may be aware of this, but the placement of the book of Judges in your Old Testament has changed down throughout history. We follow what's known as the Septuagint. In the Christian Bible, we place Ruth right next to Judges. It's a great location for it. But perhaps it was in the days of Jesus that Ruth would have been on the other end of Proverbs. Now think about it. You finish up reading Proverbs 31, the great Proverbs 31 woman, and you turn the page and you begin to read about a model of Proverbs 31, this outsider named Ruth. She's an incredible person. But notice, secondly, Boaz. The story displays him in the latter half, and he begins to get a little more coverage, and he begins to be seen as the hero. Now, you'll notice in verse 2 of chapter 2, as soon as we turn into it, it says he is a worthy man. Some of your translations may talk about him being a wealthy man. This would have been a godly man and an incredibly wealthy man in the local Bethlehem community. This is a solid citizen. He's the ancient version of a Kiwanis and 
all the stuff that goes on in the community. He is a staple. In fact, verse 1 tells us that he's both worthy and wealthy. But in verse 4, we learn he's also godly. How do we know that? Now, why would, in the space of four chapters, let's say you're writing Ruth, in the space of four chapters, why would you bother dropping in a piece of how Boaz greets his workers? Why wouldn't you just cut that piece out? Here's why. When he greets his workers as it comes in the field, he didn't say, hey, guys. He didn't say hello. He says, may God be with you. May God bless you. And they respond in kind. God is in even the way in which they greet one another. Now, if you want to know if a businessman is a godly man, you don't walk around on Sundays and note how the businessman and the businesswoman is involved in the church. Here's how you know if they're godly. You follow them around during the week. You see how they deal with even the least of the least within their company. Has God trickled down to every minutia part of their business? Boaz is a good man. He's a godly man. Now, we'll notice that he's already heard at this moment, his workers tell him this incredible story of Ruth and her great character. He tells his men, don't touch her. He gives her instructions. I don't want you on the edges of the field. If you're on the edges of the field, they may come and get you and assault you. I want you right here in the middle of the field, right behind my workers, like a running back, a tailback might follow a fullback. He's watching after her. He makes sure that she has enough to take home. Remember, Naomi sees such a great amount that even Naomi says, whose field were you in? She takes notice of it. Every time, nearly every time Boaz has a moment of interaction with Ruth, he's always commenting on how Ruth takes care of her former mother-in-law. Isn't that incredible? Boaz was a good man. He was a godly man. There's a lot to learn about Boaz. By the way, here in the middle of this series, I pray that you're reading this. I challenged you a week ago to read this at least once a week for the next several weeks. But among the things that you'll not notice in this love story, not one time, not one time can I see that we're told Ruth is either good-looking, model, or she is ugly as sin. We're not told anything about Ruth's looks, and the Bible will do that. The Bible tells us that Joseph is extremely good-looking. The Bible tells us that Esther, the other Old Testament book named for a woman, that she's beautiful. She won a beauty contest. We don't know anything about Ruth's looks. For all we know, when she was 18, she could have been Miss Moab. Or she might have been the ugliest thing walking ancient Israel in that day and time. You know what I do like about this? When Ruth asks Boaz, why are you so kind to me? Why are you so kind to my family? He says, here's why I'm so kind. I heard about how you treated Naomi. All of Bethlehem's talking about your great character. It's been almost 40 years ago now. It appeared first in the New York Times and trickled down into some of the other papers throughout the country. A woman wrote a column in the newspaper years ago describing her self-image. She was about 40 years of age, evidently, when she wrote it. I quote, she said, more than 40 years of looking at myself in the mirror has left me like so many women I know, 
almost totally ignorant of what I really look like. In the mirror, I do not see reality. I see a composite of memories, wishes, half-truths, and old photos of myself. She goes on to explain how she wants to look younger, she wants to feel prettier. So she goes and spends 11 hours, one of these makeover places, 11 hours. Can you imagine how much that cost? And so the 40-something-year-old mother and wife comes back home, and there her seven-year-old daughter greets the new mom. She shrieks and cries for 20 minutes not recognizing mom. That's when the article concludes. She said, I thought I looked good, but now I don't look like mommy. You know, we think about looks. Much of our society is built on that. How good we look, how trim we are, whether we hit the genetic lottery, just how incredibly good-looking we are. Did you see how Boaz approaches Ruth? She says again, why are you so kind to me? He says, right there in verse 10 of chapter 3, he answers in verse 11, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Boaz is attracted to Ruth because of her good character, because of her great character. He says, in effect, I've heard how you've treated your mother-in-law, your incredible kindness to her. And everyone in town is talking about your sacrificial love, this incredible friendship. Friends, the truth is, as much as we hate it, looks come and looks go. Your looks will fade away. That's just the way it works. Your internal beauty, unlike your external beauty, your internal beauty can get stronger week by week, year by year, in this lifetime and in the next. George MacDonald wrote a fairy tale some years ago, called it The Princess and Curdie. Curdie was a little boy that was given a supernatural power in the fairy tale. He went on a dangerous quest, and so the prince had Curdie, this little boy, put his hand inside a fire of rose petals. It's very painful when he draws it out. But for the rest of his quest, Curdie could reach out and touch someone and see their inner character. He was given a supernatural ability. He could reach out and touch the hand of a horrible monster and find that inside was trapped the hand of a little girl. He could reach out and touch a regal-looking king or a beautiful-looking woman or queen and find that there was a vulture inside. That fairy tale teaches us that external beauty and external attractiveness is always temporary. It's always fading. But internal beauty can get stronger and stronger, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Many of us have, who are single in the, our church today, you've screened out a lot of good potential candidates based on looks. Be a Boaz. Look beyond external beauty into an internal beauty, an internal character. There's something powerful in this. He looks at who she is, and he sees a remarkable resolve in Ruth. She stands out some 3,000 years later 
for her incredible character. By the way, do you think for any moment, had you caught Ruth at any moment in the story, do you think she would have said, oh yeah, I believe that they're going to be studying my life 3,000 plus years from now? Not for a second. But God was watching. I love this story of how they come back to Bethlehem and how they come back even in the middle of the story and the tide is turning and God is working for them. Some years ago in the Northeast, a group of six college students decided to leave on spring break their college and make their way down to Fort Lauderdale. They rode a bus because that's what you do when you don't have much money as a college student. So traveling from New York to Fort Lauderdale, they were on the bus, they were seated, they were looking forward to a great week of reveling and party. And that's where they noticed a man get on who's all by himself. Deceived, disheveled, not really looking the part of a normal person. He was very quiet, sat down, didn't say anything to anyone. And that's when one of the college students finally engaged him in conversation. They would find out that Vingo, that was his name, Vingo, not Bingo, Vingo. They would say to him, are you married? He said, well, I'm not really sure. Not sure. How do you not know if you're married? That's when Vingo explained that he'd been in the state penitentiary in New York for the past four years. He had not told his wife out of embarrassment. He had no contact with his wife or his children. They're in Fort Lauderdale area. First went to prison. He wrote his wife and only told her that he was going away for a long time. If she couldn't stand it, he said she could forget him and marry someone else. As far as he knew, that's exactly what she'd had done. On the bus ride, they began to hear his story. And it was a week before he had told these six students that he had learned that his parole was coming up. And know that it was for sure, he wrote his wife, having not contacted her for four years, her not knowing where he is, and explained everything to her. And that's when he said, if you'll take me back, put a white flag on the old tree by the bus stop there in Fort Lauderdale. If it's there, I'll get out and know that you welcome me. If it's not, I'll keep riding and find my home someplace else. Well, now this long trip of these six college students hearing the whole story, anticipation began to draw near. It was when they were near Brunswick, just outside of Jacksonville, that the six college students, long before they began to really see it. They could see something white on the tree. They began to slap one of their high fives. They began to just go crazy in the bus. They couldn't believe it. They started screaming and shouting and crying and dancing in the aisle because there was not just one flag on the tree, but the tree was full of flags. Everyone was parting in the back of that bus except Bingo, who sat silent, wondering, how could he be married to someone to show him such incredible kindness? You know what the gospel is? It is Jesus telling you you can come home. When in reality, there should be no welcome mat whatsoever based on what you and I have done. You and I are sinners. We've alienated ourselves from God. We've pushed him away. The cross is a tree written all over it. You can come home. Your sins are forgiven. The blood of Christ has banished your sins, and you're welcome to receive Christ. 
Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.